You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, Yahweh forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in, and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise. Take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Then the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, Yahweh also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat, and any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom Yahweh cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 795 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, January 14th, 2024, and we just read 1 Kings chapter 21 in the Old Testament. We'll talk about 1 Kings chapter 21 in just a minute, but first I want to say congratulations to Lucas and Katie Abernathy. Katie, formerly Klausmeyer, but we were there as... Her name changed yesterday. We had the great pleasure and privilege of celebrating the wedding of Lucas and Katie, now Abernathy, who are, I trust, enjoying their first 24 hours of married life, long anticipated, a lovely couple, and I had the pleasure of emceeing their reception after the wedding. I've never done that before. I was super nervous, but... I'm told that it went well. There was a little bit to figure out as far as sound levels, and that I regret. And we had one technical hiccup, one little glitch, but otherwise it went well. People had a good time. We had a good time. And again, we're just all so very, very happy for Lucas and Katie Abernathy. They had a lovely ceremony. And the ceremony being so intentional, not just demonstrating their love and affection, for one another, their enthusiasm about committing themselves to one another for the rest of their lives. Their ceremony was also a demonstration of their love for God and actually a overarching, overriding love for God that's not either or. It's not either you love God or you love one another, but you've got to pick one. No, it's because he first loved us and because we love him and 
aspire to love him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, that we are then able from that position of security and confidence to love one another well, or as well as can be, but he gives more grace. And again, I just want to say, it was a beautiful ceremony expressing that, communicating that to all in attendance, myself and my wife included, and our children. And I'm very glad that we all had the opportunity to be encouraged, to be challenged, and yes, to rejoice and to celebrate with this new couple that we know. So again, congratulations to them. And marriage is a good thing. He who finds a wife finds a good thing, generally speaking. But now let's talk about 1 Kings chapter 21. Speaking of he who finds a wife finds a good thing. It really comes down to what's the character of (laughs) the man and the woman. And in the case of Ahab and Jezebel, it's not that marriage is a bad thing. That's not the point. And it's not that women are bad, uh, that that's the point. And it's not that men are bad. And that's the point, but it is the point that sin corrupts everything that it touches. And that includes the institution of marriage. Ahab coveting his neighbor's vineyard is how it starts. But then when he sulks and he pouts about Naboth not agreeing to sell him the vineyard for any price, because why? This is his inheritance. This is the land of his fathers. When Naboth refuses to sell it for any price, really honestly for any reason or no reason at all, Ahab only cares about one thing, what he wants. That's all he cares about. He knows that he wants the vineyard and he knows that he's not getting the vineyard and that gulls him. And rather than stewing in that for a little bit and then coming out of it and realizing I'm being unreasonable, I'm being selfish. I'm not loving my neighbor well. I'm not honoring God. In this instance, one of the Ten Commandments is not to covet anything that belongs to your neighbor, and I'm coveting what belongs to my neighbor. And so I'm actually already in sin. Rather than him going through the process of recognizing any of that, repenting, humbling himself on the front end, he pouts and he sulks, and maybe he has some idea that Jezebel is the sort, if she sees Naboth as an impediment to her husband's happiness, or if she sees that Ahab is upset, she's going to try and get him whatever it is that he wants. This is the game. Maybe Ahab has an idea of that, or maybe this is just his pattern and she plays him like a fiddle. In any event, her first thought is, I will get you this vineyard at any cost. And her only rationale stated is he's the king. And so in other words, he should just get whatever it is that he wants. Aren't you the ruler? Don't you govern this land? Aren't you the king? What are you talking about? Why are you mopey? I'll get the field for you. I'll get the vineyard for you. What follows is a textbook case of government corruption where instructions are given And a plot is hatched and a scheme is undertaken to set up Naboth and falsely accuse him so that he will be put to death. Everybody involved knows that this is injustice. This is evil. This is corrupt. And whether because they've been bribed or because they're afraid that similar bad things 
are going to be set up for them if they refuse, just like Naboth is about to get the business for having refused Ahab. All the more, rather than less, you don't refuse Jezebel. So either they're afraid or they've been bribed in any event. Either way, they go along with it. And the next thing you know, Naboth has been taken outside the city gates of Jezreel and stoned to death. And the next thing you know, Ahab goes to possess the vineyard that he wanted. See, problem solved, Jezebel says. Not so fast, though. You can bribe and bully the elders of the city, and you can find worthless men. There's never a shortage of worthless men who can be talked into it either for money or a trading of favors or just for the fun of it even. But there's somebody who can't be talked into this, and he can't be bribed, and he can't be bullied. This someone, Ahab and Jezebel and the elders of the city of Jezreel and the worthless men, didn't take into account is Yahweh, God of Israel. In fact, God above all gods. Yahweh sees what has been done, and he's very displeased. And he says to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Now, what follows is an exchange when Elijah does, in fact, go to confront Ahab. Have you found me, O my enemy? What is Elijah's response? I'm not your enemy. Whoa, no, 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 no. You've got this all wrong. I'm just trying to serve the Lord. No, he doesn't need to say any of that. Why wax eloquent? It would be entirely wasted on Ahab, and you've got a message you're supposed to deliver, so just get to it. Seems to be the mindset of Elijah. Elijah says, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. Now, that's an interesting way to put it. It started out with Ahab asking to buy a field or a vineyard or a plot of land And now the charge against him is that he has sold himself. Instead of paying with money or giving a different vineyard to Naboth, Ahab has traded his soul in exchange for this vineyard. He's paid a much, much higher price. Jesus asks, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is nothing. It's a bad trade, but that's the kind of a trade that materialists routinely make. The soul is whatever, whatever I feel, whatever I enjoy, whatever I sense with my natural senses. The soul is my reputation, what people say about me, what people know about me, how impressed they are with me. Well, Elijah's not impressed. On behalf of Yahweh, he's not impressed. Now, what's interesting too, if you consider the structure of what Elijah tells to Ahab, there's very little, thus says Yahweh. Elijah just gets right into it. You have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh, and yet he almost forgets to say, thus says Yahweh, it seems. Maybe he doesn't need to, 
Or maybe there's too much emotion in the moment. But what Elijah says is, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. For the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, Yahweh also said, which is to say, Elijah, perhaps as an afterthought, is clarifying at this point, verse 23, that this is Yahweh speaking, by the way. Did I mention that? I have a message. It goes without saying. Ahab, you know that. You know better than to regard me as your personal enemy. I'm just going to get right into it. If you want to talk to me as if I'm your personal enemy, well, then I will just speak the words of God after him because at root, you've made Yahweh your enemy. You've acted as an enemy of Yahweh, and you know it, and I know it. So let's just cut to the chase, shall we? Of Jezebel, Yahweh also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat, and anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Now, a little bit about this. Consider that a lavish funeral and ornate place of burial, think some of the tombs that have been unearthed around the world where kings and emperors have expended a huge amount of man hours and treasure to go into the afterlife in style, in luxury, to get a right proper send-off. Typically, they start the construction of their tombs well in advance of their actual death. But then, while they're still living, they can enjoy some benefit of people being very impressed with the tomb that is being prepared for them. And it also communicates something of a memento mori, a reminder of their own mortality. In case anybody else would suppose they don't know that they're going to die at some point, this king, this emperor, whomever, is saying, I expect to die, but I expect to be honored when I die. Which is to say, for as long as I'm alive, the expectation is that you will respect me, you will honor me, I will get the best of you, of all of you. That's what kings and emperors communicate when they have lavish tombs, and when those who follow after them have lavish ceremonies to send off the departed into the afterlife, into the other world, into the great beyond, it's exactly what those kings and emperors are signaling they desire at the end, to be remembered for generations to come. This man was a great man, and Here he lies. If the body of some king or his queen, on the other hand, is eaten by dogs in the streets, or if his blood is licked up by the dogs outside of the gates of the city, what that expresses is total ruination of not just his life, that he would be dead, right? I mean, he's going to be dead, but it's a foretelling of the kind of death, it'll be an ignominious death, and also it'll be a lonely death or else you'll be joined in death by everybody who would otherwise protect you. They're going to get it too. But then also after death, there's going to be so much contempt 
for you. So little regard and love, so little love lost for you that your body isn't even going to be properly buried in a timely manner. In fact, it's just going to be left out there for a bit while people attend to things that are more important, that they care more about, that are more pressing for their interests, or that perhaps have to do with celebrating the fact that you're dead. In fact, they may get so caught up in celebrating your death instead of mourning your passing, celebrating your passing, that even while you're alive still, you should recognize you are not well-loved and you're not well-liked. And if some people pretend to like you, it's just because they're afraid of what would happen if they didn't. And so actually you're very alone right now. And so even though you're not dead right now, you should understand you are isolated. And the only thing holding your reign, your position as king together is fear. You're not loved, you're feared. Nobody is going to miss you. In fact, they're going to celebrate that you've died. And anybody who would mourn that you had passed, say, for instance, in your household, they're also going to die. So that nobody like you becomes king after you. That's what it is that Elijah is expressing per God to Ahab. And this is part of what it means that God raises up rulers. And just like he raises up rulers, he brings them low. This can be papered over only so long. It can be spun. It can be presented in a manipulative, selective, dishonest way only for so long at a certain point. Those who do the spinning are themselves ruined in the spinning and everybody looks with contempt on them as well and sees them as actually instrumental, not just having bad character because they would lie in a general sense, but actually that they are complicit in the ruination of a nation, of a people. And so at a certain point, the spin is less and less persuasive and also less and less enthusiastic. And I think we see some anticipation of that in the reaction of Ahab. It says here, verse 27, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And that's an interesting thing because Ahab didn't show any contrition at all, any humility at all when Elijah first came to confront him at the vineyard of Naboth. In fact, he called him his enemy. But then that's part of the danger of being double-minded. Maybe one mind is inclined to humble shows of penitence, a desire to turn away from what is evil, a desire to pursue what is good. Maybe one mind is that way, and the other mind, meanwhile, is actually in the driver's seat most of the time, often enough, to where you never really do repent. You never really do turn away from sin, except for a brief time. Think Gollum and Smeagol in The Lord of the Rings. You never know which one of them you're going to get, even though they're the same person, they're different personalities within the same person. And he's not well, this character. And everybody knows it, and he knows it, but then what do you do about it? Something needs to be corrected and put right, but then if every time somebody would try to recalibrate his character, his perception of things, his attitude, his priorities, his heart, if every time somebody would try to do that, the bad side comes out, 
and takes over. And now the object of wrath is the one who was trying to correct. Well, at a certain point, a very similar thing happens to that person as happens to Smeagol and Gollum, the both, or Ahab, destruction. Now, that's unfortunate. That's jarring, perhaps, to some of us. And we think, oh, I don't like that. I don't like that talk of death and judgment and hellfire or pain and suffering and ignominy in this life. I don't like that. Oh, but what restrains evil? And what do you think is the proper response to evil? And have you considered how much of the response up until the final moment of judgment, final judgment, is patient, slow to wrath, slow to anger, giving of multiple opportunities, opportunity after opportunity to amend ways, do you recognize how patient God is and how slow to anger he is and how much he endures and how long he does wait, even for somebody as corrupt as Ahab, before the final verdict? Nope, that's it. You're done. Now, interestingly here, Ahab humbles himself after having been confronted by Elijah. And so God says to Elijah, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. You might say regarding that, well, did God not know? Did God learn something new? A better way to look at it would be God is teaching Elijah and us also something new if we didn't know it. And he's reinforcing something that we should have known because there are other instances of this exact lesson being taught in Scripture. But those who humble themselves before God find grace. He gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God wants us to know that. And yes, as bad as Ahab is, it's true even with regards to Ahab. Because honestly, how bad are we? His story makes it into the book here, but there are plenty of stories of bad deeds that God knows and we don't know, or maybe we have some idea of, but it's not commonly known. Or if it is spoken of, very similar mechanisms come into play to make sure that the guilty are not punished and not corrected in a timely manner. And perhaps the innocent are taken outside the gates of the city and stoned to death, even though we know that they were innocent We know of instances like that, and maybe we wonder, why does God not step in? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And the simple answer is, it's to our great benefit that God is patient with sin, because we have sin, and we underestimate how very sinful our sin is. We should be careful wanting too much of the preventative care, pre-conviction of wicked inclinations in others, because if that standard was applied to us, nobody would be left. None of us would be left. God would be left because he's always right, but none of us would be left. And so we find here at the very last, however much there may be disagreement about the foreknowledge, is there free will here? Does Ahab have free will? Is it all predestined? However much we might disagree or debate or ponder what's going on, that God says, 
one thing through Elijah as to what will happen to Ahab. And then Ahab humbles himself and God says this will happen in his son's days. What we need to take away is, like I said, he's slow to anger. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So be humble. And even in being humble, you'll find that these sorts of things, one, you are at peace with them more readily, but then for two, they make more sense than they did before. Even your understanding of these things may be clouded by too much pride. But if you humble yourself, you may just find that certain components fall into their proper place relative to the whole. But enough about 1 Kings chapter 21. We're not finished with Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah just yet. There is more, but we'll get into that in our next episode, Lord willing, tomorrow or the next day. For now, let's talk about some current events items. And just as a little bit of a outline for you, what to expect. We're going to talk about whether inflation is your fault, what the IRS is telling to taxpayers in the U.S. ahead of tax season in the new year, record intake of tax revenues by the IRS last year. We're going to talk a little bit more about millennials and baby boomers and Gen Z what is going on with the three generations? And it's funny how Gen X sort of gets skipped over, but then they're a much smaller generation. And they kind of like it that way, I think, getting skipped over. They prefer it that way. We're going to talk about apartment sizes, what you can get square footage-wise in the U.S. for the average cost of $1,700 a month. And lastly, we'll finish up with an article by Carl R. Truman from January 5th, published in World Magazine, titled, Is There a Backstop to the Moral Revolution? All that in this episode we will touch on, and it's good that we have primed our convictions with First Kings chapter 21 before we do, but we have to start somewhere, so we might as well start with Cardinal Pritchard over at Not the Bee, talking about The Atlantic and a piece that they published too recently regarding whose fault inflation is. Spoiler alert, inflation is your fault. Yes, you heard that right. Here's an idea. If people are so mad about high prices, why do they keep buying so many expensive things? And that's a direct quote from The Atlantic. And thank you to James Lindsay for highlighting this. Thank you to Cardinal Pritchard for posting about it. Some quotes from The Atlantic piece in question here. You would think with prices as high as they are that Americans would have tempered their enthusiasm for shopping of late, that they would have pulled back spending on luxury items, that they would have sought out budget and basic options, bought smaller packages, fewer things. This is not what has happened. Consumer spending rose 0.2% after accounting for higher prices in October, the most recent month for which the government has data. Online shopping jumped 7.8% over the Thanksgiving long weekend, more than analysts had anticipated. The sales of new cars, dishwashers, cruise vacations, jewelry, all things people tend to give up when they are watching their budget remain strong. Consultants keep anticipating a recession precipitated by the death of the consumer. Thus far, the consumer is staying alive. People hate inflation, just not enough to spend less. This is one of the central tensions of today's economy. 
in which things are going great, yet everyone is miserable, and in some ways, Americans have nobody to blame but themselves. As Cardinal Pritchard points out, the rest of this article is behind a paywall, which is hilarious because that means people actually pay to read The Atlantic. Yes, quite right. Author Annie Lowry, nevertheless, is in essence saying, if you want somebody to blame for inflation, blame yourself. And to that, I say, we need to understand that it's not just spending. I would hope that is obvious, but maybe it's not obvious. There's not a basic understanding of economics that should be requisite going into this kind of a headline. I would agree inflation is more than just the fault of the people who control monetary policy. And it's more than just the fault of the legislators who pass huge spending bills and they fund not just our own government, but also send quite a lot of money to foreign governments. I would say that it's more than just the fault of the legislators. And it's more than just the fault of the media for spinning every potential perspective expenditure as essential. If you don't support spending more money on education, well, then you just don't really even care about kids getting a good education. Well, what <laughs> what if we thought about this in terms of more than just spending more money? What if failing schools are moneymakers because people will just want to throw money at the problem? And what if it's not a money issue? What if it's not that we have too little investment? Maybe we've got the wrong kind of investment. The issue is a little bit more complicated than just blaming the folks who ask for more and more and more money. And it's more complicated than just buying things. We have to understand supply and demand. The supply of money, the demand for goods and services, which have a finite quality. If the supply of money is less and less finite in our conception, as voters, yes, as consumers, but as voters, then we will vote for people who then represent us, that's the idea, or we'll tolerate people being voted in who represent our apathy and indifference, who act as though money is no object. And when you act as though money is no object, relative a finite supply of goods and services, some of which are not luxuries at all, like food, for instance, not a luxury. Housing is not a luxury. Transportation is not a luxury. When we act as though money is less and less finite, what that turns into is printing more and more money at the highest levels because everything's a crisis. Everything is an existential threat. Everything possibly jeopardizes the reelection of this or that person unless they can get more cash. When the incentive structure is predicated on how much did you spend, how much money did you throw at the problem, and that's how we'll measure how much you care about solving the issue, we invite every kind of corruption or we signal that as corruption shows itself, we're not going to do anything about it. So it is partly our fault because we've empowered people or we have not disempowered people who drive inflation. But the cost of these things changing is not just a factor of more of us buying these things. And it's not just a factor of 
businesses charging more in an abstract sense, they're passing their costs on to us because the things that they purchased cost more and more. And yes, everything is worth what the purchaser will pay for it, but that's just it. Remember in 1 Kings chapter 21, which we read just a little bit ago and talked through just a little bit ago, Naboth had a vineyard adjacent to Ahab's property. Ahab wanted that vineyard. He was willing to let Naboth name his price. And Naboth was not willing to sell the property. At that point, not just economic decisions were being made, but economic decisions were being made, and they were being weighed and measured over and against other priorities that you can't just boil down to dollars and cents. Naboth wasn't willing to boil them down to dollars and cents. But then, so also, the elders of the city of Jezreel being either susceptible to bribe or bully tactics from Jezebel meant that they all lost respect for themselves and one another. And they all came to see themselves and one another in a different light. And there was a coarsening of the character of Jezreel when they decided to go along with Jezebel in that moment. Perhaps it was already bad character that they had, but it didn't improve their character to go along with Jezebel. In fact, it cemented in the tendencies that they had. But then that is to say that Ahab and Jezebel getting the judgment, getting the confrontation from Elijah should teach us something of who God blames. And this is an important point that shouldn't be understated. It is appropriate to blame people who hold positions of high office for the role that they play in corrupting either lower levels of government, those who serve under them, or those who serve adjacent to them, or the people writ large. Ahab again and again is confronted with the charge that not just he has sinned individually, privately, but that he has led Israel in sin, that he and his wife have corrupted Israel by their example and by their commands, by their influence, which they have. You can't just give credit where credit is due. If good things happen as a result of good leadership, you also have to give blame where blame is due. It's a both and, but you can't just have the cream off the top. And then when judgment is due because you were acting in a godless, ungodly, wicked, evil way, you say, oh, no, but it doesn't work like that. And if the people are grieved by these sorts of things, inflation, for instance, being a measure that something is increasingly unhealthy, decreasingly healthy about our economic situation on the macro and who oversees that, who campaigns claiming they're going to do something good about it, and then we give them the latitude, either actively or passively, to do something about it, and then what are the effects Either we should have called them out as liars on the front end when they claimed that they could improve these things, or the next time around, we should say, we don't believe you, we don't trust you, that you actually can accomplish and affect the things that you are promising to accomplish and affect. Or we have to admit at a certain point, yes, you did affect those factors and those dynamics. And yes, we do see economic consequences as a result of your management or mismanagement, your leadership, your example good or bad. And what are the effects? If the effects are very bad, perhaps at a certain point, we should review the receipts before we figure out who to elect or reelect next. It's good for us to have 
a internal mental and emotional and spiritual defense against somebody saying all the bad things are the fault of the public and all the good things you credit to the government, to the bureaucracy, to elected officials and those that they appoint or retain in the administrative state. The Atlantic here is carrying water, make no mistake, for Joe Biden or trying to, but this is gaslighting. This is abusive on the front end of an administration like Joe Biden's. They'll say Joe Biden is going to improve our economic situation in all these ways. And once that turns out to be exactly the opposite of what has happened, they'll spin it and say, this is all your guys' fault. Actually, you want to blame somebody, blame yourselves. Well, maybe we should blame ourselves for being gullible, naive, indifferent, lackadaisical, irreverent even, if a large portion of what has deteriorated as far as economic factors is actually to do with our having ignored God's precepts with regards to equal weights and measures, for instance, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, loving your neighbor as you love yourself, providing things honest in the sight of all men, whatever your hand finds to do, doing it with your strength as unto the Lord, working as unto the Lord, not for the approval of men, but as a servant of Christ, because we've neglected those things, our economic situation has suffered because we have not dealt justly and because many of us have been susceptible to bribes and bullying going along with wickedness and corruption. Maybe we should take a long hard look in the mirror, but that's not the angle that the Atlantic piece in question here wants us to take. That's not the angle they're taking. They're saying, if you want inflation to improve, just stop buying things. Well, okay, maybe that does okay for expensive watches and expensive vacations, new cars, dishwashers, etc. But what about food? Hey, you want food to stop getting more and more expensive? Stop buying so much food. Ah, okay, great. Great. How about this? Maybe we should make more food. Why are we not making more food? That's a better question. And an even better question still has to do with our belief about man's nature. Is man inherently good? Are the people who put themselves forward promising the sun, the moon, and the stars, if you vote for them, inherently good? Should you believe that they only have the best of intentions? And should you look the other way when there's obvious indication of corruption? They themselves have taken bribes. Should you look the other way and just hold your nose and vote for them anyways? Or should your conception of the character of man be informed by passages like 1 Kings 21, where we recognize that a very nice vineyard that was absolutely the private property of a man named Naboth can so upset the king of a country that a chain of events is initiated by his pouting and sulking that leads to the unjust murder, the false accusation turning into a conviction, turning into the death penalty for an innocent man who did nothing so bad as was claimed, and yet he was in the way. He had said no. You don't tell Ahab no, not when Jezebel is going to hear of it. You ask how high. He tells you to name your price, and maybe you go low. Our understanding of human nature, our conception of man's nature, even, yes, in the positions of highest authority in a civil government, 
over a nation, over a people, needs to be informed by 1 Kings chapter 21, including in relation to things like inflation. Meanwhile, I'm sure that the Epoch Times reporting from Tom Ozimek, November 6th, IRS warns taxpayers to adjust withholding now or face a surprise later, has nothing at all to do with inflation. Nothing whatsoever. They are telling you that you need to adjust your withholding, but then why, right? Why do you need to adjust your withholding or face a surprise later if they haven't raised taxes? And of course they need to raise taxes. They need to extract more money from the economy in order to fund an ever larger role for government. But then at what point do you say that actually is affecting the price of basic goods and services in the general economy for the general public? At what point does it become a sign of corruption that more and more taxes are taken? A surprise. Oh, like a good surprise? I like good surprises. Well, no, of course. You're not going to be told (laughs) just you're withholding or else you'll face a pleasant surprise later. No, no. It's always a nasty surprise that you're warned about when you're told to adjust your withholding. Otherwise, you wouldn't bother. You'd say, oh, cool. No, I'll just take the bigger tax refund. But then that's not the way that this government under Joe Biden and the Democrats is set up. And yes, even under far too many Republicans who also are big government types, thanks to neoconservatism, thanks to previous generations having decided to trade in a limited government tradition in exchange for being merely anti-communist. It's not a pleasant surprise you should expect when the IRS says you need to adjust your withholding or face a surprise later. It's an unpleasant surprise, as in you may owe more in taxes than were taken out of your paycheck on a regular basis. But then why wouldn't people adjust their withholding when groceries and utilities and fuel costs and clothes and an education for their children gets more and more and more expensive and the Atlantic is running pieces about how inflation is your fault? Why wouldn't most Americans adjust their withholding to make their weekly, bi-weekly paychecks even smaller? Simply put, because they're just barely scraping by, most of them. And they're just barely scraping by to get the necessities. And then, yes, even with the way that advertising is framed, some things that are not necessities are presented as essential, as in you won't be able to function in the future economy if you don't have this thing, or if your children don't have this thing. They're not going to have even a basic capacity to compete in the marketplace for good jobs that allow them to barely scrape by. (laughs) At a certain point, you have to say that tax rates become a moral issue and they do become oppressive. At a certain point, when the promise was that you give everything to the government and then the government will give you back what they decide you need and they'll make sure that everybody has what they need, but you're just barely scraping by, you have to say, hey, wait a second, is there the potential in the human heart, even, yes, in the heart of a politician or a political party or a bureaucratic establishment, is there the potential in the human heart to be taking what doesn't rightly belong to them, what shouldn't belong to them, what they shouldn't be demanding, and then getting vindictive, getting retributive when you say, 
Actually, no. I'm going to keep that. That's mine. I've inherited that from my fathers before me. This is my portion. No, it's not for sale. If our anthropology, if our political theology is informed by passages like 1 Kings chapter 21, we don't just know that it's possible. We do know that, but we don't just know that. We also know what God thinks of it, that this is so serious when somebody in a position of government authority abuses their power and sets a tone and actually insists on corruption at lower levels of government, they're the supreme executive, but they insist on corruption at lower levels as well to actually make the rubber meet the road and get the results that they want. We know the mind of God from what God tells Elijah to tell Ahab, that at a certain point, that corruption, that insistence on corruption, so that the person at the very top gets whatever they want, whenever they want it, from whoever they want it, and they destroy whoever gets in their way, that will result in judgment. And there's an aspect of the judgment that's coming for Ahab and his household that is God orchestrating these things and bringing justice. And there's an aspect of this that has to do with the general public, that the general public will have so much contempt for Ahab and Jezebel and the house of Ahab that when they die, it will be a good riddance and not a, oh, that's so sad. It'll be a, it's about time. Not a, already? The IRS, Internal Revenue Service, warning taxpayers to adjust withholding now or face a surprise later needs to be taken into consideration alongside pieces like we're seeing in the Atlantic that are supposed to, if not satisfy, <laughs> confuse and disorient those who apparently are growing increasingly discontent with the current state of things. And they need to be at least content enough to not change their government, to not clean it up. They need to be at least that content, or at least too confused to know, or at least too cynical to believe that any change would be beneficial, or that there is such a thing as a better option. Meanwhile, Commodore Vanderbilt over at Not the Bee highlights another Epoch Times piece, this one with the headline that the IRS raked in a record $4.9 trillion in taxes from Americans in the last fiscal year, due in large part to automated collections processes and aggressive audits that saw taxpayers hit with billions in additional taxes after examination. As Commodore Vanderbilt writes, Man, just think of how effective those aggressive audits will be if the federal swamp gets its 87,000 armed IRS agents. And oh, by the way, you did hear me right, I hope. $4.9 trillion in taxes were collected by the IRS last year. $4.9 trillion. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money that, if not extracted from the economy in taxes would be circulating in the economy. And the Democrats would have you believe that the very people who donate to them are the ones who are being taxed so much. I guarantee you, it's not the ones who are donating to them who are on the losing end of this deal. If the ones donating disproportionately to Democrats and even to big government, bureaucratic state Republicans, 
if they were on the losing end, if they were actually going to lose money and lose their status as billionaires as a result of the policies of the Democrats or the neoconservative Republicans, they wouldn't be donating to them. They would donate to somebody else. If the Democrats can find any billionaires donating to candidates who want to shrink the size of government, they want a smaller scope for our federal government, they want a more limited scope for the U.S. government, they say, well, that's just the billionaire class. But you have to understand this is a complicated engine-building game. And they've built an engine that through, yes, taxes, they pay, and through campaign donations, they pay, but that's business. That's just the cost of doing business. What do they get in government contracts? What do they get in access to foreign markets? What do they get in regulations that disproportionately affect their competitors and make sure that they maintain market share or increase their market share because they get ahead of the regulations, then they lobby for the regulations that they're ahead on and their market share increases as their competitors shift from innovation to compliance, shift from increasing output, which would affect inflation as well, to hiring more people to make sure that they're keeping up with regulations. It's the people who have to keep up with the regulations that end up losing, and there's an opportunity cost that's paid there. But it's the people who lobby for the regulations who always just happen to be positioned to be compliant well in advance. And what they're doing when the regulations hit is they're expanding because it's a game. But then these are unequal weights and measures. And this is not just an economic issue. This is a moral issue. This is a question of equal weights and measures. And if you say, well, everybody's having to play by the same rules, that's not all there is to say. That's not all there is that we need to attend to. There's also the question of, are these rules reasonable or are these rules oppressive? And are they designed to affect very much the same or very similar results to what we find in 1 Kings chapter 21? If Naboth had actually been guilty of what it is that he was accused of, that would be one thing. When you know that he's not guilty of it, but the accusation and the worthless fellows who are lined up to make the accusation, you get two witnesses. Okay, great. How many do we need? Two or three witnesses? Every charge is to be established by two or three witnesses? Okay, check. Right? We're in compliance. We're complying with regulations. Oh, and, and then we need some local jurisdiction leadership government officials, the elders of the city of Jezreel, to review the case, of course, right? They've got to try this case. They've got to consider the arguments. If Naboth is pleading his innocence, but these two witnesses are saying he's blasphemed against God and the king, the elders of Jezreel need to evaluate that. That's part of the process, right? That's according to regulation. And so check. We'll make sure that we go through that process. And if found guilty, the punishment is death, and so we'll make sure that we follow the regulations. We'll make sure that the punishment fits the crime if there's a conviction, if there's a guilty verdict after the testimony of these two worthless fellows has been heard and considered. After, of course, we allow Naboth to plead his own innocence, but the outcome is foreknown. It is predetermined, 
and we know that Naboth is innocent and it doesn't matter. We don't care. Regulations in this case are very helpful, very useful to get the outcome that we want. And we're just going to make it appear to the public that this is all above board. It's just a coincidence that Ahab will be taking that vineyard after Naboth is dead. It's just a coincidence. Don't be such a conspiracy theorist. No, no, but people conspire. That's the thing. Sometimes it's not a theory. Sometimes it's a fact. Like, for instance, when you read it in the biblical text. Regulations are not morally neutral if they are implemented and applied and the penalties are assessed under false pretenses because this is actually just somebody trying to get what it is that they want. They coveted what was their neighbor's and they're just trying to take what it is that they want. If they spin it as, well, this is actually good for the community of Jezreel. This is going to stimulate the economy. This is actually what's best for the nation of Israel. Of course, Ahab should have the best vineyard. I mean, come on. To suggest otherwise would dishonor the king. You don't want to do that, do you? How dare you question what the king may have been up to here? We'll investigate, sure, yeah. We'll investigate, and if it turns out that Ahab never technically told Jezebel to do what it was that she did, then his hands are clean. Well, okay, but his hands are not clean. And the judgment from God through Elijah, God telling Elijah to go and confront Ahab, proves that it's not just Ahab having pouted and sulked, and then Jezebel is going off the reservation. Whatever she did, well, that's just on her, but that's not anything you can trace back to Ahab. No, the judgment, the confrontation, the wording of it to Ahab proves that Ahab knew exactly what he was up to when he told Jezebel what he told her. Just like when he came back from the confrontation, the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, when he told Jezebel what Elijah had done in leading the people of Israel to put to death the 450 prophets of Baal. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly where she was going to go with that. He wanted her to behave according to the nature he already knew that she had because in that way, his hands would be clean after a fashion. Well, I'm not the one who did it. Jezebel did that. So plausible deniability. But at the same time also, he was going to get what he wanted, which was retribution against Elijah and something of a saving of face. If she could pull it off, if she could actually get Elijah dead, then Ahab would be reconfirmed in his being the dominant man in all Israel, dominant even over this most prominent enemy, this most prominent troubler of Israel. You could say, oh, this is all just politics. Oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if we should read too much into these things. Listen, when we're talking about American politics, And the media has banged the drum for years now that if there was even the remotest chance of hypothetically corrupt advantage or benefit to Trump's family or his friends, to his being president, he needed to be impeached, he needed to be removed from office, those family members, those friends needed to be destroyed, if they even accidentally benefited, never mind whether they did or didn't, If we could imply that they did, then they should be essentially destroyed for corruption. But then the standard of measure changes to just the opposite when we're talking about Joe Biden and his son or his brother. We're dealing with unequal weights and measures, and that is all we need to know 
to recognize corruption, to recognize that this is conspiracy. That's all you need to know is that there is this double standard. And some will say, ah, but you know, we need more to go on than just pointing out the double standard and the hypocrisy of the left. Actually, we don't. We, we actually don't need more to go on than the hypocrisy because the hypocrisy is proof that this isn't about the letter of the law and it's not about what is moral, what is upright. This isn't about justice. This is about power. This is about getting what belongs to your neighbor and if they'll do that to anybody, they'll do it to everybody. And once that's common knowledge, then yes, even something as seemingly on the face of it, unobtrusive and boring as record tax revenues, $4.9 trillion, needs to be looked at with more skepticism. But let's take a break from all of the IRS talk and inflation talk for just a minute, if we can. Consider Aaron Wren's blog post from December 8th, Weekly Digest, Millennials versus Boomers, one of my favorite topics, honestly, as of the last year. He writes, welcome to my weekly digest for December 8th, 2023, with the best articles from around the web and a roundup of my recent writings and appearances. Once again, I encourage all of you to pre-order a copy of my forthcoming book, Life in the Negative World. I would really like to read that book, by the way. It's coming out January 30th. Pre-ordering will really help the book succeed in having an impact, and you will also get a free bonus material to boot. Thanks so much. Skipping on down, he shares something that a reader responded to his post about becoming illegible, which we've talked about on this podcast. But this reader wrote to him this observation, and I quote, I find this also interesting and quite germane to my experience in visiting a new church in my city. Redacted. The church is evangelical and has traditional biblical stances on social issues and morals. This is anathema to my hyper-progressive town. If word gets out, the picketers and cancel culture vultures will circle alternative views are not to be allowed in my oh-so-tolerant and inclusive town. So what I have noticed while visiting the church and seeking to get further involved is that there is a seemingly deliberate illegibility about the church in anything public-facing. No contact information is given about the staff. There is a vetting application process to get access to the full church webpage, and even its midweek community group leaders and locations are hidden and only accessible via a pre-vetting process. And uh, they contact you gatekeeping Instead of seeker-friendly, it feels seeker-wary, as if these supposed seekers could be sheep in wolf's clothing. I see this as what will be increasingly the mode of Christ-following churches in the negative world we are entering into, churches in redacted, and other leftist locales are at the front of this coming wave of needing to be illegible. The church is going underground. Now, that's a very interesting take, and I would say I've seen that as well. I have seen that as well, that it's not quite hedging, but there's a subtle but unmistakable shifting of the feet and a sideways glancing if you start talking about anything in mixed company that would provoke the ire of folks who are more worldly, who get their values, they get their morals, they get their worldview from corporate media. But moving on down in the same post from Aaron Wren. Under the section, Boomers and the Millennial Children, Aaron Wren writes, Business Insider ran an interesting article about millennials who complain that their boomer parents are too selfish to help out with the grandkids. Here's a quote from that Business Insider article. 
Looking back on her childhood, Christiana Hilberg said that it was never a question whether her grandmother would watch her and her brother when their parents went on a trip. If mom and dad ran out of town, we were at grandma's, the 33-year-old told Business Insider. Grandma wasn't going anywhere, and we always knew that. But Hilberg, a mom of three, said there's no guarantee that her parents or in-laws would do the same for their grandkids, certainly not at the snap of a finger. Quote, we have to make sure that we are asking months in advance, end quote, she said, adding that their own travel plans often have to be factored in. A May analysis, skipping on down, still more from Business Insider, a May analysis from Bank of America on consumer spending habits found boomers were outspending other generations on travel and dining out. And why shouldn't they? According to the Federal Reserve, baby boomers own more than $78 trillion in assets. That's around half of all wealth in the country. But while they're busy spending their money, their millennial children feel left behind. Leslie Dobson, a psychologist in Los Angeles, said many of her millennial clients were dealing with feelings of abandonment and resentment toward their boomer parents. Skipping on down still further from Business Insider. The elder Dobson said that even if he's off boating and playing pickleball in Mexico, he'd still done plenty to help his children out, including supporting them financially through much of their lives. At this point, he said he deserves to spend some of his money on himself. Quote, they've all got nannies. We didn't have a damn nanny. They drive expensive SUVs. I drove a freaking minivan. Moving to Mexico and buying a boat hasn't taken away from his children, he said. Quote, I haven't spent a nickel less on my kids. I just spent some on me. Still, many millennial children, including Dobson's own, would prefer time spent and not necessarily money. Aaron Wren follows up saying this, we've been very fortunate that our boomer parents are willing, even eager to come see and help out with our son. There are plenty of boomers who are actively engaged. Grandparents, we've met many boomers around here who moved to this area specifically to be close to and help out with their grandchildren, but there still seems to be plenty of narcissistic boomers who are still living their best life now and plan to spend as much of their money as they can on themselves before they die. At the same time, my observation is that millennials are very willing to cut off their own parents over various imagined slights or ideological differences, some parents seem to live in fear of their own children doing just that. Now, about this, and we'll get into more of a particular substance of not necessarily millennials, but Gen Z, and I think more of the same uh, frustration here in just a minute with the next story. But for what it is that Aaron Rand is saying here, that there are quite a lot of boomers who are very narcissistic understand that Gen X was the most aborted generation in American history. It's a much, much smaller generation because of abortion and because of contraceptives. The millennials are larger as a generation than Gen X. And this is ironic given that the baby boomers are called baby boomers because There were so many babies who were born right after World War II, after the GIs came back. The GI generation, the greatest generation, came back. But then is this perhaps pride going before a fall? And I don't just mean the baby boomers being proud. Yes, I do believe that a lot of baby boomers are very entitled. And they reinforce in their own generation among themselves that this is quite proper and there's nothing untoward about it at all. But also the GI generation, there might have been a need to be a bit more humble and to instill in their children greater humility. And yet, what do we call them? We call them the greatest generation. Well, perhaps that was the beginning of this sense of entitlement 
and the boomers saying essentially, hold my beer, wanting to prove that they were greater than the greatest generation, even greaterest generation is what they're aspiring to be remembered as. And yet it's looking like the boomers, when they are no longer holding half of all the wealth in the US, and when they're no longer able to run for president anymore, when we run out of baby boomers to serve in Congress as well, Gen X to some extent, but I would say even more so the millennial generation, my generation, Gen Z will say, phew, because there has been quite a lot of hoarding. Just like baby boomers aborted so many of their own children and prevented so many of their own children from being conceived in the first place through birth control, they related to the millennials that they had, by and large, in a very selfish way. Even when they were being overprotective, that was not for the sake of their children, it was for their own sake, so that they wouldn't be thought of as bad parents among their peers. And then Gen Z has gotten the short straw. Millennials overprotected, overmanaged, helicopter parenting has given, I would say, a couple of generations a high tolerance for excessive surveillance, excessive regulation by our federal government over our daily affairs. There's too much meddling and innovation is kind of whatever is left over. If anything is left over, you can innovate, but you probably shouldn't. It's not safe. Compliance is desired, but then that compliance is expected and it's demanded of the younger generations. You make sure you pay your taxes. You make sure you're paying into social security and Medicaid. You make sure you're working. And if you're not quite making it materially, but the boomers are, they'll make much of having worked hard to this point and they'll trumpet how successful they were by the age most millennials and Gen Z are now. But I would remind all of my listeners here that the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about widows and the care for widows who are true widows, he says that a man who does not provide for the needs of his relatives is worse than an unbeliever, worse than an infidel. The baby boomer generation religiously, this has been analyzed and the conclusion is such, the baby boomer generation is much more religious than Gen X and the millennials and Gen Z, although we'll get to that in just a minute as well, that Gen Z may be going back to church, turning back to Christian faith. But the baby boomers adopted a very moralistic kind of Christian faith. And ironically, that moralistic Christian faith may have just been another variation on the same theme of self-indulgence. The sexual revolution, aborting their children, they felt bad about that, and they tried to overcompensate by overprotecting the millennials once they were ready to have kids. But then they also wanted to have much fewer, a much smaller family. Why? Because they didn't want to have to share resources, even when they were raising children. They resented, many of them did, because of the messaging of the feminist movement and the sexual revolution, they resented being tied down. And divorce was very high in the 90s. Divorce rates have gone down, but that's primarily because young people are just not getting married in the first place, in large part because the baby boomers put such a bad taste in the mouth of their millennial children and their Gen Z grandchildren because they related, so many of those baby boomers did, to marriage as the end of their best years. Their best years having been when 
Love was free. You make love, not war. But even if they stayed married, and even if they had kids, grading on a scale, baby boomers who are moralistic and religious have told themselves and one another, we're good people. In fact, we're the best people. In fact, we're not just aspiring to be better than the GI generation. Maybe that ship has sailed. Maybe it's too late to prove that we're better than the GI generation. But by golly, we'll at least be better than the millennials. We'll at least be better than Gen Z. And there's so much of it that's just self-justifying. And there's so much of it, too, that I believe smacks of 1 Kings chapter 21, where when the boomers see something adjacent to what they have that they want, because they have access to the levers of power, they just maneuver and play on morality to set up for the fall who it is that has what they want. And I think it's the boomers who have made so toxic our political situation. They have made so polarized our political discourse in this country, and it very much resembles a marriage that has soured. In fact, I think it's just a transposing of the way that husbands and wives who've decided they don't want to be married to the other person. They don't want to love the other person. They don't want to serve the other person. They don't want to consider the other person. They don't want to honor the other person anymore. They want to be honored. They want to be respected. They want to be loved. Their needs aren't being met. And so they're going to be as ugly and awful to the other person as they have to until they can find a way out of the marriage or they can make the other say uncle and give in and give up. But at that point too, they might say, I've lost all respect for you. If they get what they think they want, which is to dominate the other person, they may say, I feel nothing for you and just flit off. They may just give up on trying to morally justify and then they reach for therapeutic language. But then so much of my generation and Gen Z has looked at that and said, that's awful. If that's what marriage is, I don't want marriage. If that's how the parent-child relationship is going to be, I don't want to have children. And then again, because this is grading on a curve, I think the boomers who stayed married and they stayed in church and they kept their noses clean and they bought their houses back in the 70s or the 80s and they're paid for and worth 10 times what they originally purchased them for, or at least they could sell them for 10 times. They don't even stop to consider that that's absurd. I mean, just get this for a moment, if you would. To sell a house for a baby boomer couple who raised all their kids, you know, they got married, bought that house together, raised all their kids in that house, and now they're ready for something smaller. They're going to sell this house. If they sell it for 10 times as much to a couple that is in the same place that they were in when they got married, that couple is paying 10 times as much as what the baby boomer couple had to pay relative the costs of food and utilities and transportation and an education. Don't even get me started on that. And none of that do the boomers as a generation take responsibility for. None of that do they say, actually, that's on us and we apologize and we're sorry. And before we are completely concluded so that the last word on us actually causes you to miss us when we're gone, we're going to try and do all we can to fix it. No, no, they don't do that. They skip out, most of them. And they just keep on being selfish. If they've gotten everything that they wanted out of the parent-child relationship and now their children are asking something of them from a position of, well, this is our family, right? This is our household. I've seen this 
I'm very sad to say, I've seen this, that boomers will start acting indignant, like, how could you? Like this is some betrayal. Instead of, like when the Apostle Paul says, he who does not provide for the needs of his relatives, especially the members of his own household, is worse than an unbeliever. So if the children of boomers and the grandchildren of boomers really could use their help, really, really, really could, even if it's not financial, it's just time, and they're retired anyways, and so what are they going to do? It doesn't matter what the boomers are doing with their time. They want to do whatever they want to do with their time. That's really what it's about, and they don't want to fulfill their obligations and their responsibilities to their extended family, except on their terms at the time and manner of their choosing, right up until they don't want to anymore. And then they want to feel good about going back to being completely self-absorbed for however many weeks or months or years it is until the next time they decide they feel like being of help to their own children, their own grandchildren. And yes, this is going to generate frustration and a sense of alienation. Yes, this is going to lead to the younger generation saying, what's wrong with you? <laughs> this is not okay. I mean, what, what in the world? But it is a generational thing. And one thing we have to appreciate, just from an analytical standpoint, is the effect of television programming and the corporate news media. It, just like it affects us in a certain way today, Increasingly, there's a self-awareness that, yes, these things have their effect, but then the combination changes and we're susceptible to the next thing. The next thing for them that they weren't quite so on the defense about was television broadcasting. And it was very hypnotic and it standardized a lot of their generation's culture and attitudes. That's something we take for granted because we've got endless variety. We can watch all the shows that they watched we could probably buy the whole season if it's not just included with some subscription that we already have, Amazon Prime or what have you. We can watch all the shows that they watched, but we can watch them at a time of our choosing, on the device of our choosing. And then we can read all kinds of analysis from anybody and everybody. And we could talk about it online with anybody and everybody who also really enjoys watching that show. And we could deep dive on unpacking that show. That's something that wasn't available to the boomers generation as TV increasingly became the mode of entertainment for them. Now, they may have been more resilient against the manipulative aspects of radio technology than their parents were. Radio was pretty new when their parents were our age. Our grandparents were our age. Our great-grandparents were our age. But then that's just to say some compassion should be felt for the boomers as a generation, even as it is proper to be cautious about following their example, not just in particulars, but in generalities and in attitudes and outlooks on life that express themselves in certain particularities. It's good for us to honor those who are older and to speak respectfully to them, but it's also good for us to look in hindsight at, say, for instance, the children of Israel in the generation that comes out of Egypt and the wandering in the desert for 40 years and God saying that the next generation would be the one to go into the promised land. That doesn't mean that the millennials are the next generation that's going to go into the promised land and the baby boomers are the ones who are wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that from one generation to the next, there can be a major distinction 
even just from the standpoint of kings of Israel and Judah, from one generation of the king is in this household, in this family, to his son or his grandson's generation, you can have either he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh more than all who came before him, or you can have he followed the example of his forefather, David. He loved Yahweh and he honored God and he led Israel back to honoring God. If it's appropriate for us to see those patterns in scripture, it's also appropriate for us to look for and yes, even talk about those patterns contemporaneously to ourselves. In fact, because we see those patterns in scripture, we have to be on the lookout for those patterns in our own context. Otherwise, it's just trivia, but it can't be just that. Next up, though, I want to play for you some audio. Cut one here, brought to me to bring to you from Harambe, not his real name, at not the B, by way of Ian Miles Chung on X, with the caption, Gen Z will hopefully soon realize supporting and advocating for Biden was a bad idea. Harambe's comment, someone is finally starting to see the truth of it all. If you're looking for the video to watch the video, the description for this podcast episode has it filed under. This Walmart worker's epic rant is proof that Gen Z is starting to get it. There is more that is expressed in the facial gestures, the hand gestures, than comes through in just the audio. But we'll play the audio, and then I have some thoughts on why it's so important that we wouldn't just look at biblical text like I'm talking about with regards to generations as trivia. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. I cannot stand how the news has been dogging Gen Z and calling them lazy for not wanting to work a nine to five for the rest of their lives. Let me put it in perspective for everybody who's a little confused here. Okay. I work five days out of the week, 40 hours a week. Okay. I do not make enough to live on my own. I would not make enough to pay rent, water, electric, and eat all by myself. I would not be capable of doing that. 20 years ago, when you were getting started, you could live on your own. 20 years ago, when you first started, you were able to do everything that I am now struggling to do. Let me add another perspective here. You've been working for 20 years. You have 20 years of working experience behind your belt. You have 20 years of experience in a career that has allowed you to gain raises, to get more money, to profit you in an economy that you created. You can sit here and you can call Gen Z lazy all you want, but I've been working my tail end off just to barely make it by. And respectfully, I don't want to do that for the rest of my life. I don't want to work my tail end off, wasting all of my life working just to barely be able to pay my bills. And that is what you created, not Gen Z. We're just here getting started. You've been doing it for the last 20 years. You tell me how it got ruined. We can sit here and we can call Gen Z lazy all you want, but you let the economy turn into what it did. You let it all run to hell. And now it's Gen Z's fault because we don't want to work to fix your mistakes. And cut. Oi, 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 oi. Ouch. I don't say ouch like I'm looking down on this young lady. I say ouch like, man, I hurt. I empathize with what she's expressing here. Uh, Just a couple of thoughts to consider, if you will, if you'll indulge me. One, I've noticed as a father of nine, uh, my oldest son will be 17 this summer. My second oldest will be 16 this summer. My third will be 15 at the end of the year. 
Next down will be 13 in May. I've noticed that very often something my children will do frustrates me or I'm concerned about it or it worries me. I see them doing something or I hear them saying something. And my first thought is, that's not good. That's not a good attitude. Oh, don't do that. Don't say that. Where did you get this idea? That that is an okay thing (laughs) to say or to do. That's my first thought. And I start to correct them. And then I maybe I'm talking with my wife and I'm like, wow, what, what are they watching on TV or what are they playing? Who are they hanging out with? And then maybe just maybe as my wife and I are talking about it, I get to realizing, well, they've been watching us. <laughs> they've been hanging out with us. They've been listening to us. And actually, have we taught them some of these behaviors? Have we taught them some of these attitudes? Have we modeled for them some of these attitudes that we're seeing and we are objecting to as not so good, but we ourselves do the very thing that we're objecting to, but we see it more clearly when it's they're exhibiting those behaviors. They're showing those kinds of fruit. Now, a thought, if I can recognize that in my own relationship with my own children, and then I can realize that it takes humility, it takes wanting to humble myself before the Lord to repent of any ungodly example that I've set for my own children, if I can recognize that it takes my committing myself to loving God better in the example that I set for my children, if I understand firsthand that it takes committing myself again to loving my wife and my children well enough to admit to them, you know what? I think some of what you're displaying, I have taught you that. I have shown you that, and that was wrong, and I'm sorry. If I recognize how much humility or how difficult that is to square with my own pride, my own desire to justify myself— then I have to imagine that it's not just me, that this is a temptation that is common to all. No temptation has seized me, but that which is common to all, which then in turn leads me to the conclusion that other people face similar type scenarios in their parent-child relationships. Maybe even generations face that sort of a dynamic and have to figure out what to do about it. I have to make a decision individually, yes, but also collectively. If as a generation, the decision is to justify oneself and to scapegoat our children, that will result in alienation. That will result in bitterness. That will result in confusion. And oh, by the way, just like it can be clearer for us to see the error of their ways, our children's ways, when we hear them saying something that is not reasonable and it's not right and it's not the way you should talk to people. So also, if we were modeling for our children what it looks like, what it sounds like when you admit that you were mistaken about something and you truly were, objectively were mistaken about that thing, then it can be clearer for them than if they have to just figure that out all on their own. But if we model for them actually doubling down, then what are they going to pick up? What are they going to learn? They're going to learn to double down. Or at a certain point, they're going to have to say both what I am doing and what I am saying is not so good and so true, and also who taught me to act this way or to talk this way 
it served me poorly, both ands, because it's objectively not good and not true. I have to say both and. It was not good that they taught me that and they showed me that and they set that example. And it's also not good that I would follow that example and that pattern. In the case of this young lady, this Gen Z Walmart employee sitting in her car, frustrated at being talked down to and treated with contempt by older generations for supposedly being lazy, her catalog of what she knows about dollars and cents, how much money she's taking in versus what the basic necessities of life cost, her cataloging that, her running through it and saying she doesn't want to be working a nine to five for the rest of her life and not being able to support herself. That's not her idea of a good time. I want you to consider that right alongside the reading of Aaron Wren's blog post in our section just previous to this one, where the boomers, when challenged or asked about how they're relating to their children and their grandchildren in their retirement years, buying a boat, moving to Mexico, traveling the world, what they answer is, what? Well, I paid my dues. I drove a freaking minivan. It's about time that I get mine. In other words, the boomers have communicated to Gen Z and the millennials that you're a chump if you're working a nine to five any longer than you absolutely have to. But then at the same time, if the boomers are saying, you guys are so entitled You're just lazy. That's why you don't have a vehicle bought and paid for. That's why you don't have your own house. That's why you aren't married. That's why you don't have kids. If that's what they're saying, what are they showing? What are they demonstrating? Well, they're demonstrating that they're not actually invested at all in helping to facilitate that for the next generation. And why do I say that? Because the boomers are spending their money on travel and buying more property and buying nicer, shinier, faster, newer vehicles, and indulging themselves. So in some sense, you say that the millennials and Gen Z could be forgiven, perhaps, for not having placed a high value on getting married and having kids and buying a home and buying vehicles and paying for them because the boomers have not placed a very high priority on all of that. The boomers are not all that invested. And I'm sure I could just hear Boomers aplenty would say, well, that's not our job. Previous generations didn't invest in those things being a reality for us. And I would say, actually, that's not true. And that's the biggest failure of the boomer generation is to have treated with contempt previous generations of Americans who did bleed and sweat and toil and even die for their ability to be so self-indulgent. The boomers have not followed in the footsteps of the GI generation writ large. And how do I know that? Because the boomers are so well off, they inherited an economic situation that was born of blood, sweat, and tears, the blood, sweat, and tears of the previous generation and many previous generations to theirs. And what they've done is hubristically tried to overhaul and rewrite American life to suit themselves and not to pass something even better still down to the next generation and the generation after. No, they aborted the next generation. And the generation after that, they've boxed out through a very similar application of regulations to what corporations 
engage in. They lobby the government for regulations, which then are going to disproportionately affect their competitors. That is to say that the baby boomers view the millennials and the Gen Z cohorts as competition for finite resources. And this is not all that dissimilar from the WEF folks jet-setting off to Davos to plot how to combat climate change by lowering all of our carbon emissions, all the while their carbon emissions, their carbon footprint is thousands of times what ours individually are. They're going to fix this so that they have Naboth's vineyard, in other words. And of course, if Naboth expects that and sees that playing out in real time, if he knows that these are false accusations and they just happen to be so interestingly timed with Ahab having wanted that vineyard of his, if Naboth is frustrated and upset and knows his own innocence and is pleading his own innocence, even right up until the moment he's taken outside of the city gates and stoned to death, I think Naboth can be forgiven for being frustrated. I think he has a right to be frustrated that his vineyard, his inheritance is being stolen out from under him, even as he's being falsely accused and maligned so as to create the pretext for exactly the kind of abusive, exploitative, covetous, evil behavior that Ahab is engaged in by proxy, by way of Jezebel. And that's another interesting thing to consider here, too, is how Ahab and Jezebel making the circle larger somehow causes them to feel the sense of security. But God knows. Whatever an individual common citizen of Israel, a common Israelite, might get told to shut them up if they object, they observe these things and are troubled by them and might complain how that's not respectful, how that's not your place, how you don't know that, that's fake news, whatever. God knows and God sends Elijah to confront Ahab about it. And it's because Elijah is the sort who will obey God when God tells him to go confront Ahab, that Ahab's greeting to Elijah in the vineyard of Naboth, which Ahab has just gone and possessed, is to call him an enemy. There are other possibilities, though. For instance, Ahab could have said, what have I done now? Or he could have paid attention the last several warnings, and instead, here we are, right? Here we are, and the deed has been done, and a man has been slandered and then murdered, essentially, because the king coveted his property. All of this matters to God. All of this should matter to us. When it's a multi-generational transaction, what is said from one generation to the next, and oh, by the way, we have to recognize that the same selfishness that's inherent to the decision to get an abortion or to use contraceptions to prevent conception in the first place, that same selfishness, if it's still there and it hasn't been repented of, will just express itself against those who have been born, whether your own children or just somebody else's kids, who cares? But that said, speaking of Gen Z, our next article asks the question, is Gen Z going back to church? Now, before I read any of it, be warned that this article is for subscribers only of The Daily Wire. So if you're not a paid subscriber for The Daily Wire, 
you can't read the entirety of this. And therefore, in the interest of being respectful to the Daily Wire, which I like very much, I am only going to read as far as is not behind the paywall. And I'll encourage you, if you don't have a Daily Wire subscription, get one. And if you do have one, read the rest of the article because it is interesting. But I use this as a reference point. May read Elordi's reporting from January 12th with the subtitle, quote, 2023 hit so hard I had to turn to religion. Here highlighted is a video from TikTok of a young woman sitting in a church, knees up with the caption, 2023 hit so hard I had to turn to religion. This was a video back in October. Now, what's interesting is not just that this was posted to TikTok by anybody. People post all kinds of things to TikTok. But what's interesting is that the video has 2.1 million views and 382,000 likes with comments like, I started praying. I got baptized. I went to church last week for the first time in my life. And that is to say that Gen Z, as they lose confidence in their elders, as they lose confidence in every institution, in fact, Systematically, they've been told that they're supposed to lose confidence in every institution. Maybe, perhaps, possibly, a growing number of them recognize that they need to have faith in someone. And I would put forward it's a very good thing if Gen Z concludes from all of the sound and fury, this tale told by an idiot, not that life is a tale told by an idiot, but that life as presented to a lot of Gen Zers has been a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The best response is to make sense of life by asking the author of life, God himself. And the answer is not church, but if the church will introduce you to God, then that is a very good thing, that Gen Z would get back to church and be introduced to the one who made them, the one who watches over their souls, the one who sees the sparrow fall, and says that they are more precious than many sparrows, who so clothes the lilies of the field that not even Solomon in all of his finery matched one of them. Gen Z losing faith in institutions because their education and their entertainment have systematically told them that they must lose all faith in institutions should turn their attention to the one who does the instituting. It's not the institution you should have the faith in, it's the one who institutes. And this is a thought especially poignant to me after yesterday's wedding for Mr. and Mrs. Lucas Abernathy. Our faith is not in the institution of marriage, but we honor the institution of marriage because God instituted marriage and because God gives good gifts to his children. And marriage is a good gift. Not that we deserve it, but this is grace from God. And so we thank God for his grace. We thank him for the good gift that marriage is. Knowing all the while we can make a huge mess of things, and we do, but it gives more grace. And the goal should not be to say we sin that grace might abound all the more. And the goal should not be to say there is no such thing as sin. All is good. Whatever you want, whatever feels good, that's good. Because we've seen successively, sometimes it's not immediate, but it's over a long span of time, even multi-generationally, at a certain point, the bill comes due. And so perhaps we should say we repent, we turn away from the sins of our fathers, and we turn to God. And we ask God, as many of our forefathers have, for forgiveness in Christ, already paid for 
in Christ. We ask for a new heart. We ask to be made clean, to be cleansed of all unrighteousness, confessing our sins because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The best thing that could possibly happen to Gen Z or the millennials or the baby boomers or Gen X, let's not forget them, even though most of the time, even when they were very young, they were passed over. They were the lost generation and afterthought latchkey kids. The best thing that could happen to the Gen Xers as well is that God would not count their sins against them, that they would seek God's face, not in a moralistic and mercenary way, not like Jezebel coming up with a pretext to destroy Naboth because Naboth wouldn't sell a vineyard to Ahab. How dare he? No, no, but in a remove the plank from my own eye so I can see clearly to help my brother, help my neighbor with the speck in his eye. That sort of a morality. If you really love what is good, you'll want what is good to truly reside in you. That is to say, you'll want the word of God to reside in you, and you'll want Christ's righteousness to reside in you. Moving on. For one last touch on the economic situation, consider Commodore Vanderbilt again at Not the Bee with a post from November 30th. Here's the apartment size that the average rent of $1,700 will get you throughout the U.S. Across the U.S., renters pay an average of roughly $1,700 a month for their apartments, but the kind of space you'll get for that sum differs wildly from region to region. Rent Cafe compared the country's 50 largest cities to see what apartment size a monthly budget of $1,700 can get you in different zip codes. A total of 1,665 zip codes were studied, so roughly 1,700 by 1,700, I suppose. Commodore Vanderbilt writes, It's unsurprising that, yes, the space you'll get for $1,700 differs wildly depending upon where you are in the country, but when you see the numbers laid out, it's especially staggering. Here's the top 10 most expensive rental markets by square footage. And oh, by the way, all 10 of these zip codes are in Manhattan or Queens, New York. Almost all of them are in Manhattan. Number nine is Queens. But for $1,700 a month, you can get about 200 square feet of living space. Pretty much no space at all. That's pretty much a bedroom and a bathroom and a small kitchenette. <laughs> it doubles as your dining room. That's what you get for 200 square feet. Vanderbilt continues. Yes, folks, those square footages are in the 200s. In any sane market, that would be the size of your guest bedroom, but not your entire living space. If you move to New York City, you're going to pay out the wazoo for an infinitesimally small scrap of space. Other cities like Los Angeles aren't much better. Depending where you live, you might get 300 to 600 square feet for $1,700. Here, meanwhile, are the top 10 from the other end of the spectrum. Zip codes with the most space for the national average rent of $1,700. Memphis, Tennessee, you get 1,996 square feet. Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, 1,993. San Antonio, Texas, 1,971. Memphis, Tennessee, 1,928. Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1,899. Memphis, Tennessee, 1,874. Oklahoma City, Oklahoma in spots 7 and 8 at roughly 1,870 square feet. Kansas City, Missouri has a zip code present on this list, 1,841 square feet. Memphis, Tennessee shows up again. Another zip code in that metropolitan area. 
1,837 square feet. I see a pattern here, just like there was a pattern with regards to Manhattan and Queens. There's a pattern here. Tennessee, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Missouri, and Tennessee, all pretty much the opposite of Manhattan. (laughs) All that said, we pay about $2,100 a month for less than 2,500 square feet in Greeley, Colorado. And I empathize with Commodore Vanderbilt, who says the last, last time I was a renter in 2013, I rented a one-bedroom, 500-square-foot apartment for about $550. My wife and I, when we rented a small two-bedroom house in eastern Montana in 2012, we paid $850, and we had the most gorgeous eastern Montana views. We were five miles from our nearest neighbor up on a plateau. It was gorgeous. Those days are gone, and I don't know when they will ever return. With that ratio of what it costs to have housing relative income, and again, talking about Gen Z here, Gen Z, they're in their teens and in their early 20s. They missed out on all of that. That's not their fault. They were not the ones making decisions that brought us to the point where $1,700 a month gets you 2,000 square feet in the best metropolitan zip codes in the U.S. And all the while, if they're making minimum wage, working 40 hours a week, they're probably, if they live on their own or at least away from their parents, they're probably sharing that space with enough people to where it's still more or less the equivalent of a Manhattan apartment for each of them. This is not just an economic issue. This is not just a political situation, and it's not by accident. It's not random chance. These are decisions and priorities and paradigms, both active and passive, that translate into what is the lived reality for successive generations? What is being passed on from those who are older to those who are younger? A righteous man, Proverbs says, leaves an inheritance for his children's children which is to say that he gives thought for what he passes down. It doesn't say a righteous man lavishes on himself everything that's left over in his last days, gets while the getting is still good, while he can still enjoy whatever it is that he's saved up to this point. No. And actually, I think what the final verdict will be is that so much of this selfishness not only gets picked up by the younger generations and then fed right back to the older generations in a way they didn't expect. But also, a lot of this selfishness is going to mean that the capacity for younger generations to be able to support retiring and elderly boomers, the capacity to be able to support them, to be able to provide for them, to house them, to give them medical care as they have health issues, as they are no longer able to take care of themselves and live by themselves, that capacity will actually undermine the satisfaction of these older generations who either didn't have any kids or they had one or two, but then whatever was left over of their retirement, they burned through it instead of investing it in their children and their grandchildren. The wise baby boomers, the wise Gen Xers will be investing in their children's children and they will get a return on their investment. They shouldn't do it for that reason, but they will get a return on their investment, but then 
this gets to our next topic in short order. When it comes to what we call good, what we say is good, what is the boundary? How are we framing the morality of these sorts of things, these sorts of dynamics, intergenerational, multigenerationally, even just within our own country? Put aside international politics for a moment. Put aside presidential races and the drama around this or that person who's currently in office or they were in office, they aspire to high office. Put aside all of that for a moment and just think in terms of the social situation, the social dynamic, because that does get expressed in our political situation. It does express itself economically. But let's just talk about the relationship of people to one another with regards to what we call morality. Carl Truman, writing for World Magazine, published January 5th of this year, is there a backstop to the moral revolution? The subtitle here is, Events from Iowa to Virginia Suggest Hard Choices Ahead for the Rising Generation of Christians. Full credit to J.P. Chavez for sending this one to me, along with a slew of other articles, a treasure trove, really, is what I told him it was. He is a treasure, by the way. But this one in particular, thank you to J.P., for sending to me. Carl Truman writes, recent events have provided a fascinating, if somewhat depressing, insight into the state of American moral imagination. The Satanic Temple of Iowa erected a statue of the pagan god Baphomet outside of the state capitol. A school board member in Fairfax County, Virginia, was sworn in with his hand placed on a pile of LGBTQ plus themed books. And in the nation's capital, a staffer allegedly made a gay pornographic video in a Senate hearing room. Meanwhile, a storm has erupted surrounding a rather flamboyant video of tap dancing in the White House to celebrate Christmas. Do these things share anything in common? Some have been tempted to see them as signs of the moral nihilism of the left, perhaps. Although the White House video seems no more tacky than many other elements of the commercial Christmas season. As for the DC pornographic video, sleazy people do sleazy things all the time. It is hard to extrapolate from the immorality of a staffer to an entire culture. More concerning are the events in Iowa and Virginia. It is not clear from reports whether the statue of Baphomet is a serious attempt to bring such explicit paganism into the realm of cultural respectability or whether it is more of a statement concerning religion and the ownership of public space. Either way, it does point to an emerging problem within the United States. The collapse of a shared moral consensus that saw as a source of public good the broad moral contours of a Christian ethic, even if detached from the religious claims of Christianity. This is going to have grave repercussions. We can already see this in the expansion of the term Christian nationalism to include positions that have nothing to do with nationalism and everything to do with basic Christian teaching on such things as abortion and sexual ethics. That well-known ally of the church, Rob Reiner, sarcasm by the way, has a movie coming out that will no doubt reinforce this impression, aided as always by the now familiar evangelical commentariat. And as this inflation of the term occurs, as public space is cleansed of any ethical positions seen to represent a religious presence, so Christians in the rising generation will likely find themselves faced with a hard choice that people like me never had to address. Do they want to be good citizens of the earthly or of the heavenly city? It is unlikely that they will be able to do both. As to the Virginia event, the use of LGBTQ plus books in place of something sacred 
seems an obvious mockery of traditional religious authority. Again, in a country such as the United States, such is not illegal. But why would someone wish to do this? The most obvious interpretation is that sexuality is now considered to have an authority once granted to religion. That makes sense. Sex as that which makes us who we are and brings fulfillment and authenticity is a myth deeply rooted in our post-Freudian culture of sexual consumerism. In such a culture, defiance of traditional sexual mores is key to building a new society. This is one reason why much of the media and the cultural officer class present discussions about age-appropriate literature in schools as attempts to ban books. By the same logic, laws about the legal age to consume alcohol or drive on public roads should also be cast as attempts to reintroduce the 18th Amendment and ban automobiles. That the logic is only selectively applied points to the privileged status granted to some cultural topics and the peculiar political significance attached to the sexual education of children. In all of this, the other thing that is so striking is the childishness of it all. The officer class of the culture does not seem to wish to replace the old with a new that has a serious depth to it. A goat god? The Bible substituted for illustrated children's sex books? These people may be serious in their intent to overthrow the culture, and we should not underestimate them, but they offer nothing serious as a replacement. Now, on this point, what Carl Truman has to say here, as with so much of what Carl Truman has to say, I greatly appreciate it. I like Carl R. Truman quite a lot. I've liked his books I've read. I want to read more of his books in the coming year. But I want to take this piece that was sent to me in a slightly different direction. And I want to talk about it in terms of not just our discussions of how to relate to those who are now children, what their pedagogy will be, what their textbooks will contain, what their required reading may highlight and affirm and celebrate in the way of promiscuity or queerness. I want to propose to you that this is just a continuation of the very things that we were talking about to this point in this episode. 1 Kings chapter 21 presents to us Ahab, wanting his neighbor's field. It's not his field, and he knows that, and his neighbor knows that. And that's why you have to ask, what would you charge? What would this vineyard that I want cost me? Would it cost me giving you a better vineyard? Would it cost me a large sum of money? Name your price. The conversation around name your price is to say that Ahab engages Naboth under false pretenses, like he's affirming that it is Naboth's vineyard, like consent is a prerequisite to Ahab acquiring the property. But if consent is just a pretense and all Ahab really cares about is getting what he wants, then if the consent cannot be obtained at any cost, Ahab will do what Ahab does and initiate a chain of events that he knows will ensure he gets exactly what he wants at the end of it, or so he thinks. This debate about banning books that contain sexually explicit material that are being given to children as required reading, put into their libraries, put into their curriculum, as kids are being given comprehensive sex education. We need to understand that what's presented on the front end as moral or amoral on the basis of consent 
is being proposed by people who really, like Ahab, just want what they want. And they'll engage in the conversation on the front end under false pretenses. Like, I'm trying to get your consent. What would it take to get your consent? If they don't get consent, if they're told, you don't get consent under any circumstances, there's no price I would be willing to accept to give you this vineyard. They have demonstrated by their alignment with Baphomets and with pornographic videos in Senate hearing chambers, they've demonstrated that they will initiate a chain of events that makes sure at the end of the day, they get what they want. And that is to say, along the lines of what Aaron Wren has been talking about with becoming illegible, churches needing to be illegible, which is to say, encrypted after a fashion, needing to play gatekeeper a little bit more carefully about those who are supposedly seeker-friendly because what they may be really seeking is access to information about how to hurt Christians and how to purge even a local church meeting together from their community, from an influence on their neighborhood. This is of a piece with that that we would understand What's being taught is not just revolutionary with regards to sexual ethics. It's coming from a place that's very, very similar to Ahab. And if it starts out as, what would it cost? What would I have to pay you for this vineyard? We're dealing with people who have bad character, and we need to know that. The bad character that they have, that they're demonstrating, will absolutely turn vicious, vindictive, and even, yes, murderous. And it'll be procedural. They'll murder you and take your stuff through regulations to provide some kind of a moral cover, at least for those who have not evolved in their sensibilities just yet. You know, to maintain the goodwill of the public, to maintain their license to operate among those who don't really understand how these things really work. You know, the normal humans, not the econs, as they're known in behavioral economics, the normal humans who are irrational and they don't necessarily do what's in their best interest. They can't be relied on to do what's in their best interest. And so we have to make the decisions for them. We have to nudge them or create sludge for them to guide them and funnel them where they need to go, where we've decided they need to go, where is good for us or according to us for them to go. Consider verse 20 in First Kings chapter 21. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? Elijah answers, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. That language of Ahab selling himself, it shows up again in verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom Yahweh cast out before the people of Israel. Ahab sold himself. You might say he sold his soul to the devil, but then the devil has proxies, just like Ahab has proxies. Ahab sold his soul to get power and to get pleasure in this life only. And he got power and pleasure in this life. But then God rules and reigns, and that's something Ahab forgot. And it was very foolish of him to forget. But this is why the Proverbs say also, those who hate God love death. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so he doesn't factor in that the things he's doing will, at a certain point, 
incur judgment. If they're evil things, they will incur a judgment that means punishment, shame, humiliation, destruction. We may not be able to, in short order, overhaul our political situation or our economic situation or our social situation, but at a bare minimum, we should know human nature as told, as instructed in God's word. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Jesus says to his disciples as he's sending them out to proclaim the gospel in all the towns and cities and villages of Israel, behold, I send you out as sheep among wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. You should be wise in knowing that somebody of Ahab's character, when they make a pretense of negotiating with you about the purchase of something you have that they want, they have the capacity to get rather murderous, actually. And that's part of the reason why one of the Ten Commandments is to not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Because that desiring what you don't have, James would tell us, causes quarrels and divisions among us. We want what we can't have, what we shouldn't have, what doesn't belong to us. And so what do we do? We bite and claw and scratch and cheat and slander, and ultimately we murder each other. Sometimes we start out by murdering one another's reputation. For instance, claiming that someone has blasphemed against God and cursed the king when he did no such thing. This that Carl Truman is writing, asking, is there a moral revolution backstop here? Uh, The short answer is no. And the only backstop really is imposed by God himself. With how wealthy and how powerful the people are involved, they'll get more brazen. And in some sense, that will be instructive and confirming that, yes, this is who they've been for some time. And no, you weren't just imagining it. And that'll inform more of who we should and shouldn't trust. But they'll also get increasingly desperate until God himself interrupts their plans. And we know that God will because God does. In fact, God promises that he will, and that's his character that doesn't change. But before the end, for those who are embarking on this moral revolution, we will appreciate that it is not just whatever. They have engaged in the conversation around sexual ethics under false pretenses. They've engaged in the conversation around religious toleration under false pretenses. To claim that all we need to know is consent, and then you're required to affirm the appeal or the solicitation of idolatry or sexual immorality. You're required to affirm it, and then you're going to be required to participate in it. And in that case, where did that talk of consent that you were just predicating everything on a minute ago disappear to? Oh, it really wasn't about consent. It was about you just wanting what you want. You'll be dejected. You'll be depressed. You'll sulk. You'll pout when you are told no, and no means no. You'll be brokenhearted about it until an idea occurs to you that you can tell so-and-so, and they're your ally, and so-and-so will trigger a chain of events that you've got plausible deniability about, and at the end, you'll get what you want. Read the literature of the managerial class, the officer class, as Carl Truman is talking about them here. Read their own literature when they talk about how to craft the narrative 
or how to mold and shape public opinion, read the history of persuasive technology and read what they say. Listen to their back and forth when they discuss censorship online. They don't regard human beings as being specially created in the image of God. They regard human beings as the result of processes. And therefore, if you want to evolve humanity, you say, you've got to break eggs to make omelets, and you've got to impose processes on those who have not sufficiently evolved to this point. But because you believe this is survival of the fittest, and because you've convinced yourself that all the things you desire are perfectly legitimate, as long as we find animals in nature who go after those things without any restraint, then if you know that you're smarter than the animals and you think that you're smarter than those you seek to prey upon, you will impose processes on people that have devastating effects writ large. And then on the micro level, on a case-by-case personal and interpersonal level, when individuals make you feel threatened, you feel like maybe they're upstaging you or they could be a risk and they don't go along with your idolatry and your sexual immorality. They don't laugh at those jokes. They don't kowtow right alongside you, joking at first and then gradually more and more seriously, more and more gravely, like actually this is significant. Then you seek for ways to remove them because they make you very uncomfortable. And because you've predicated your morality around what is comfortable, what is evil to you is whatever makes you uncomfortable, whatever displeases you, whatever upsets you. That's what throws you into a tailspin emotionally to where you don't want to eat. Next thing you know, your wife is asking, hey, why aren't you eating? Somebody told me no today. Somebody told me no and that they're not willing to negotiate. And I'm just really, really upset about it. I really wanted that thing. God himself will step in, friends. At a certain point, God himself will remove those who trouble us and those who Regard as enemy the ones who speak God's words after him. Before they hated us, they hated Jesus. And of course they're going to hate us because they hate Jesus. They hate the exclusive claim to godhood and authority that Jesus makes. And so they hate us for living like he meant it, and it's true. That's the only backstop to the moral revolution, that God himself intervenes at a certain point to terminate their scheming and their conniving, and their persecution. I think the persecution starts out with conversations undertaken under false pretenses that turn into backroom conversations about how we're just going to box out this person. In fact, we need to find a way to remove them, and we need to make it look like this is all by the book. That's where having lots and lots and lots of regulations and a general public that has been conditioned to put very little to no stock in the written word, constitution, or Bible comes in very handy. Develop a high threshold for being regulated, monitored, and only being allowed to do what it is that you're permitted and given explicit written permission to do. Create a very high threshold for that and then just don't give permission to those who won't give whatever it is that you demand of them. It's very clever. It's very clever. But the backstop to the moral revolution, to answer Carl Truman's question, is not to be found in the hearts and minds and souls of those who trouble us and test us, really. The backstop to the moral revolution is that at a certain point, the cup of wrath is filled up and God pours it out. 
kiss the sun on the way, lest he become angry. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Let not your heart be troubled. Tell the righteous it will go well with them. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.